I invite you to come with me to Acts chapter 17. In a moment, we'll come to verses 30 and 31. Two weeks ago, when I preached in the main services, we thought together from Matthew 28 and the Great Commission about the Lord Jesus being exalted by God the Father to have all authority in heaven and on earth. He was the one who was given all authority so that he was to be obeyed by everyone everywhere as they're made his disciples. This morning, in a way, it's part two as we think about what it means that Jesus Christ has been granted all authority by God. It means, as we'll see, that this same exalted Jesus will one day be the judge of all, the final judge who renders the final verdict and determines the everlasting, irreversible destiny of every person, makes a final judgment about every life. But again, I like to sort of hit the ground running with the big story of the Bible when I take a part of it. And so once again, I just want to remind us that the Bible story of mankind is a story that really from Genesis 3 onwards becomes the story of two kingdoms in conflict. Man was created in the Garden of Eden to live under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing is a good description of what the kingdom of God is. But man joined the rebellion of Satan and the fallen angels. And the conflict between the two kingdoms began. The conflict between the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman, versus the illegitimate rebellion of the dominion of darkness, the seed, the descendants of the serpent, that is, those who would align themselves with the devil, who becomes the usurper, prince of this world. The conflict between kingdoms had begun in earnest. God in his mercy did not just act flashing forth in judgment and punish Adam and Eve, and he promised and began to provide a way for us to find mercy and pardon through atonement, to find a way back into his kingdom, the kingdom of light and blessing for all who would repent of their rebellion and receive his gracious pardon. And all of this begins to unfold and to be revealed in the Old Testament, in the life and religion of the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. But it all came to its climax in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God who was also the son of David, the king, and the son of man. The work of atonement so that pardon to the rebels could be offered that had been foreshadowed in the Old Covenant was now accomplished in the New Covenant through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross where he bore the penalty for sinners, the punishment in place of 
the rebels. And then through his resurrection, in which, as we've been saying, he was appointed and established by God again as the rightful ruler of all humankind, disarming and defeating the counterfeit king, the devil. But God still didn't yet enforce his rule and his victory. And he's giving mankind, including today, more opportunity for repentance. Remember 2 Peter 3, 9, an explanation for the delay of his return to rule. Where's the promise of his coming? That's been predicted and it's all these centuries, and it still hasn't happened. Peter says, God's not slow or slack about keeping his promise. That's not the explanation. But he's patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to that repentance. Nevertheless, the resurrected Jesus was not only appointed by God to be Lord and Christ, as Pastor Keith reminded us from Acts chapter 2, he has also been appointed by God to be the judge of everybody, everywhere, at the end of time. Acts 17, verse 30, breaking into the middle and then the rest of verse 31. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, with righteousness, by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. Clearly, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, will one day be the judge of all. And in this time before his return, God so graciously offers a free salvation and pardon through the gospel to all who will repent and believe, putting their trust in Jesus as Savior, who Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, rescues us from the coming wrath. Those who respond to the gospel in repentance and faith are transferred from that miserable dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. And they receive the gifts already of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of the rebellion. They receive also the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who works by the word to enable them in this new obedience to the rightful king and empowers them for service and witness to carry out the mission of proclaiming this news about the exalted Jesus to everyone, making disciples everywhere. But the human story, the human history is headed somewhere. It's headed toward that last day, that day that Paul writes of in 2 Timothy 4 as the time of Jesus' return, his 
appearing. He's been at the Father's right hand, mysteriously working out the work towards the kingdom's arrival. But on that day, he'll appear. His arrival to set up his reign that will begin, Paul says, with his judging the living and the dead. I want us to think about what it means to live in light of the end time judgment by Jesus Christ. In his wonderful book, which I tell you I wish I could assign to every single one of you, Knowing God, J.I. Packer has a chapter on God the judge, the wrath of God, and the goodness and severity of God. The church today needs to recover its grasp of those realities. He says, do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you really believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them of God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite of all our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You're on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of a God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. But there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. Judge is a word often applied to him. Abraham, interceding for Sodom, the sin-filled city that God was about to destroy, cried out, will not the judge of all the earth do right. It is God who judges, declares the psalmist in Psalm 75. In Psalm 82, rise up, O God, judge the earth. In the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews speaks of God the judge of all. And it's not matter only of the word or the title. The reality of divine judgment as a fact is set forth on page after page of Bible history. God judged Adam and Eve, expelling them from the garden and pronouncing curses on their future earthly life. God judged the corrupt world of Noah's day, sending a flood to destroy humankind. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, engulfing them in a fiery catastrophe. God judged Israel's Egyptian taskmasters taskmasters, just as he foretold he would, and unleashed on them the terrors of the ten plagues. God judged the Israelites who worshipped the golden calf, using the Levites as his executioners. God judged Nadab and Abihu for offering him unauthorized strange fire, as later he judged Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who were swallowed up in an earthquake. God judged Achan for sacrilegious thieving. He and his family and all his possessions were wiped out. God judged Israel for unfaithfulness to him after their entry into Canaan, causing them to fall under the dominion of other nations. 
Before they entered the promised land, God threatened his people with deportation as the ultimate penalty for impiety and idolatry. And eventually, after repeated warnings from the prophets, he judged them by carrying out the threat. Israel fell victim to Assyria and Judah to Babylon. In Babylon, God judged both Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar for their impiety. The former was given time to amend his life. The latter was not. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, a much shorter period of time, judgment falls on the Jewish people, guided by their leaders for rejecting Christ, and Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. God judges Ananias and Sapphira, for what I think many of us would think was a fairly minor flaw, transgression. But it was lying to God. God in the book of Acts judges Herod for his pride and Elymas for his opposition to the gospel. In the New Testament, it's, his judgment falls on Christians at Corinth who were afflicted with illness, which in some, time, some cases proved fatal, because of their irreverence in connection with the Lord's Supper. This is only a sample from the many accounts of divine acts of judgment which the Bible contains. I haven't even mentioned how things roll out in the book of Revelation. When we turn from the Bible history to Bible teaching, the law, the prophets, the wisdom writings, the words of Christ in the gospel and the apostles' letters, we find the thought of God's action and judgment overshadowing and framing everything. The Mosaic legislation is a given from a God who is himself a just judge and who will not hesitate to inflict penalties by direct providential action if his people break the law. Now let me just pause and say, I'm developing this list because in Romans 11:22, Paul at one key point in what he's trying to explain and teach says, consider the goodness, the kindness, and the severity, sternness of God. We are called to do both. And if our religion, if our response to God and our explanation of the gospel to others isn't going to be disfigured and caricatured so that we're always and only talking about the kindness of God and never the severity of God, then we will distort and dilute even the truths about his kindness and our explanation of those things. The Bible calls on me, calls on you, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. They're intertwined, they interact with one another, and you won't understand one rightly without the other. The prophets take up the theme. The greater part of their recorded teaching consists of exposition and application of the law and threats of judgment against the lawless and impenitent among the professing people of God. 
They spend a good deal more time preaching judgment in the prophetic books than even predicting the Messiah and his kingdom. In the wisdom literature, the same viewpoint appears. Ecclesiastes ends with this. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Packer then says, and this is a great, people who do not actually read the Bible confidently assure us that when we move from the Old Testament to the New, the theme of divine judgment fades into the background. But if we actually do examine the New Testament, even in the most cursory way, we find at once that the Old Testament emphasis on God's action as judge, far from being reduced or muted, is actually intensified. The entire New Testament is overshadowed by this certainty of a coming day of universal judgment and by the problem that arises from that fact. How can we rebels, sinners, get right with God, whom we have so greatly offended, while there is still time? The New Testament looks on to the day of judgment, the day of wrath, it's called, the wrath to come, and proclaims Jesus, the divine Savior, as also the divinely appointed judge. He's the judge who is standing at the door, James 5, ready to judge the living and the dead, 1 Peter 4, 5. The righteous judge who will give Paul his crown is the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 4. He is the one, as we read from Acts 10, 42, who has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. And in Romans 2.16, Paul writes, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my, what? Gospel declares. If your announcement of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Lord who saves, doesn't include the warning of the judgment to come, then it's not the same gospel as the Apostle Paul's. It's often not recognized that the main New Testament authority on final judgment, just as on heaven and hell, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus who constantly affirmed that in the day when all appear before God's throne to receive the abiding and eternal consequences of the life they have lived, he himself will be the Father's agent in judgment. And his word, his verdict of acceptance or rejection will be decisive. We heard that in today's scripture reading. The clearest preview of Jesus as judge is in Matthew 25. The Son of Man will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations, everybody will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. 
Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. The Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For a time is coming when all who were in their graves will hear his voice, can you imagine it, and will come out. Those who've done the good will rise to live, and those who've done the evil will rise to be condemned. Prepare to meet your God was Amos's message to Israel. Prepare to meet the risen, exalted Jesus Christ is God's message to everyone today. It's in the language of the Apostles' Creed regarding the Lord Jesus. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now as to the nature of the judgment, Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each person according to what he or she has done. It will be entirely just. It will be entirely fair. We will receive from Jesus Christ the judge exactly, exactly what we deserve. Paul amplifies this in Romans 2. He says, in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that is, when it's fully manifested, even now it's at work. Let me just pause to say when you read the book of Romans and you see what's happening so miserably and sadly in our culture today, I want you to know that the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And because of that, God gives them up to their sins and their sensuality to their follies and their depravities. His judgment's at work even in the world today. But one day it will be unmistakably manifested when Christ returns. In that day, Paul says, he will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life with all its joys and blessings. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I cannot imagine what it means for the infinitely holy, all-powerful God 
to exercise his wrath. But that's what's ahead for those who refuse the pardon. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. But glory and honor and peace, vindication, reward, and irreversible shalom and blessing for everyone who does good and God shows no favoritism. So how does the prospect of judgment apply to Christians? Jesus said in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned for he's crossed over from death to life. But Paul says, echoing what I've just read in chapter two, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him. It's what is due, it's what's deserved for what the things done while in the body, in this life. There's no second chance later. It's what's done in this life, whether good or bad. How can those two realities fit together? How does free forgiveness and justification by faith alone fit with judgment according to our works and what we do? Packer says, the answer goes along these lines. First, the gift of justification certainly shields believers from being condemned or banished from God's presence as sinners. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul assures us we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Christ is the one who justifies. Nothing can separate the believer from God's love. But second, Packer says, the gift of justification doesn't at all shield from believers from being assessed as Christians and from forfeiting good which others will enjoy if it turns out that as Christians, they've been slack, mischievous, and destructive. Look again at Romans 2, 6, and 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It seems to me clear that in the first case, Paul is describing someone who among the things that they do is seeking glory, honor, and immortality. At the center of it is they repent and believe in Jesus and begin the new life of obedience to Christ and service to God. I think it helps if we remember the time when Jesus was asked in John 6, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. It seemed to me that repenting and believing in Christ is the inception of when a person does what is good and seeks glory, honor, and immortality by trusting and following Christ to these people God will give the gift, the free gift of eternal life. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we Christians must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
It isn't a matter of being in danger of being lost and facing God's wrath. For Paul says in Romans 2 that that terrible fate only happens to those who reject the truth and follow evil. But we all know, and the New Testament teaches, that some Christians can backslide, live carnal lives, bear very little fruit, and be lax and lazy when it comes to carrying out the service and the work that they're commissioned and commanded to do. It's for this reason that the prospect of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is still exceedingly relevant and compelling for Christians too. The prospect of being judged by the Lord is a crucially relevant reality. But remember, it's not by any means only negative. It's an incentive and it's a motivation too. To live pleasing to God. Paul says that's possible because of the help of the Holy Spirit. To live a life that's pleasing to God, to serve him in a fruitful way in view of the judgment to come. Isn't that exactly what we find in 2 Timothy 4? Where Paul can say, I have fought the good fight. I've done that. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Well, what's now true because of that? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And didn't the Lord Jesus himself promise reward to those who were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake? And didn't he promise that those who were good and faithful servants in this life, that means we can be helped by the Holy Spirit, enabled by the grace of God, that those who are good and faithful servants will hear his well done The reality of being judged by Christ is crucially important and relevant for Christians too. But for the non-Christian, the unbeliever, Paul says, there will be God's wrath and anger, causing them everlasting and irreversible trouble and distress. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he elaborates even further when he writes that this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel's commanding you today to repent. You've got to obey the gospel. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. I wouldn't be a faithful watchman of Ezekiel 33 and Acts 20 if I didn't remind you of these realities too. Remember that the same beloved chapter in John's gospel that includes John 3.16 ends with, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains, remains on him. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We know him who has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge. Book of Hebrews. And then, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Consider the kindness and severity of God. Such amazing kindness, such amazing grace. God who didn't spare his own son, spare him of what? The wrath that he began to feel in Gethsemane and then experienced full-fledged on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Behold the kindness of God, that whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But also the severity. How shall we escape if we neglect, if we ignore, if we refuse such a great salvation. And so, Jesus Christ is coming back one day as judge. He offers you now salvation. If you're here and you've never really truly repented and trusted in Jesus Christ to be saved from the wrath to come, I encourage you to talk to one of the pastors, talk to a biblically wise Christian friend, or go to God this afternoon and repent and believe. If you need help in understanding the way of salvation, don't give up until you understand it, until you've done it, until you've really believed. Remember, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it were true. Repent and believe the good news. Christian, church, we who profess to believe these things, including the reality of the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead, how then shall we live? What kind of people ought we to be? We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful, and the writer of Hebrews says, Worship and serve God acceptably with reverence and awe because we of all people know or ought to know our God is a consuming fire. Rise up, church of God. Be done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom,
I give you this charge. Proclaim the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, every time we hear the word of God, it calls for a response. May every one of us be helped by the Holy Spirit to think about what it means to live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming again to judge. For those who have repented and believed and followed him, it will be glory and honor and immortality. But for those who've refused, what trouble and distress. Help us to live in light of this truth today. In Christ's name, amen.